0: Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com.
1: Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUAW's Week in Review. Hi, I'm Bill Radke. What about you? Can we count on you? Can we put you down for having the new airport in your backyard? Because that would really help us out of a jam. Or would it? Do we really need a new airport? We're going to get into that later on the Week in Review today. We've got our journalist panel, and today I'm talking Seattle Times Investigations editor, Jonathan Martin. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Axios, Seattle reporter, Melissa Santos. Hi, Melissa. Hi there. KUOW online producer and editor. Hi, Dyer Oxley. Good afternoon. Welcome back, everybody. And you can stream this show and see these faces on YouTube or Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. Let's get to it. Number one topic, how radical are Washington State Democrats? This week, in a special legislative session with a Democratic governor and Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, the state increased the penalties for having and using drugs. Not that Democrats were happy about what they had just done.
2: It has been the most challenging piece of policy that I've worked on in my career as a legislator.
3: It's a hard-fought compromise for a really,
2: really hard issue.
1: That's Democratic Senator June Robinson of Everett and Democratic Representative April Berg of Mill Creek. Melissa, why is this party bemoaning a drug law that it drove?
2: Well, really, the Supreme Court drove this. I I think we have to go back two years ago when the state Supreme Court struck down our state's felony drug law. And that precipitated this conversation where there was an agreement on how to replace it and there hasn't been agreement on how to replace it. So... There were some Democrats who would like to see uh, drug possession and, and drug use in public even totally decriminalized so, you, so that you would not have any criminal penalties. That's not what they did. They went ahead and made it a gross misdemeanor. That's a step up from where it's been at the misdemeanor level for the past two years under this temporary law that was passed two years ago after the court ruling. But it's... Um, it's less than the felony. So that's the compromise that was reached. But, you know, you just have too many factions in this issue within, this, within the Democratic Party, within, I mean, everywhere along the spectrum as well. Republicans had differing views about how should we do this? Not all Republicans wanted to make it a felony again, for instance, either. Uh, but some did. So it's just this huge range of, of issues. And uh, what we saw is that the, they had this spectacular breakdown during the legislative session on the last day where the House, controlled by Democrats, would not approve the compromise that was reached at that time with other Democrats. So um, they had to do something, and the governor was kind of like, get it together, get it together, everyone, and then they did, and here we are.
4: Yeah, The real question here was w- whether or not, uh, the, the philosophical question was whether or not you're going to de- um, treat drugs, uh, drug uh, use as a criminal problem versus using the criminal sanctions in order to incentivize uh, treatment. So there's the both sides here uh, on the philosophical debate, I think, uh, had reasonable grounds to stand on. It was interesting, going to Melissa's point, the final vote, uh, the no's ended up being pretty small, but um, the no's included uh, two very conservative eastern Washington Republicans and two very liberal Seattle Democrats. Um, So. Um, You know, I think that there is, um, the real question here is going to be implementation. Uh, The the drug compromise that was reached after, as Moses said, the breakdown at the end of the last session, um, had a lot, there's a lot in this bill. There's a lot of funding for treatment. Uh, I'm not sure if there's enough funding for the workforce that is going to be required to uh, stand up more clinics. Um, There was also one of the the kind of messy compromises, it was interesting, was that Uh, It allowed cities and counties, gave cities and counties the right to give notice if a new drug uh, needle exchange clinic was going in. So there's like a local preemption kind of thing where I think this was a um, a concession to the more conservative um, approach here. Uh, and it all, but also could undermine a right to give notice, meaning
1: a kind of if you don't like it, you would call that yeah, a warning, say, fair warning. Yeah. It's a block in order to block it.
4: Yeah, right? say there's going to be a new needle exchange clinic here in the U District. You tell, give our neighbors all the right to come in and protest, essentially. Um, so that was there's there's a lot of compromise that was built into this bill. In the end, I found it interesting. This is kind of a triumph of the moderates in an era where we have increasingly radicalization on the left and the right um and um give them credit for 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 getting this done
3: that's exactly kind of the observation i made too. you say moderates i've been calling this compromise and so forth like the, the goldilocks zone right they didn't get too hot too cold it was i guess time will tell if it's just right but uh it's it's interesting that uh, in one day they were given they were able to come up with a compromise after you know, an entire session for this to kind of get bumbled right at the arguably end. after two
4: years. After two years, exactly. there was a ton of process
3: here. There was two years of massive yeah. Of process. Made me think we should have more one-day deadlines, almost, to try to maybe get people <laughs> oh, to compromise.
2: Do. Yeah, they, the, they responded th- deadlines for sure.
3: Yeah, the the thing that is is kind of jarring me on this though, and you touched upon this a little bit, is that there is an implementation factor. We have a lot of funding. I think 63 million for everything from public defenders to health management hubs. Uh, but if if we have a problem right now, right, of saying hey, someone's you you can't sleep here. You got to go to a shelter. Where? What? Where's that shelter? Right? If you need to go into treatment right now. Where, where is that treatment center? Because we really do not have that infrastructure set up right now for the for the need that we have now. So when this law goes into place in July, I, I'm kind of hesitant to tell people, "Hey, expect everything to like go into place." Because, great, you can you can fund a public defender. You've got funding for places for people to go, but we don't necessarily have that standing up right now. So it might be
1: be misleading to say we really balance the punishment part of it with with this. We're going to stand up all these services and help, but, but is it going to be I mean, the there reality, in time for people to be diverted into that? Seattle
4: system? was not charging possession. Mm-hmm. And King County was not charging possession. I mean, people who had possession, who potentially get charged with possession, sometimes you're being charged with, like, burglary or robbery or, you know, with a property crime associated with, um, you know, supporting their addiction. But um, so, I mean, this was almost a moot debate for the city of Seattle it was the resources that come with it and mm-hmm. going to Dyer's point about the implementation here. It'll be interesting to see how the rest of the state, you know, there's, there's lots of purple parts of the state um, and how prosecutors are going to use this uh, authority. Um, I well, don't know. What's
1: going to happen in Seattle and King County? They, uh, we have uh, Ann Davison now who talks a harder line on this. Are Seattle and King County going to be, uh, how much is that up to prosecutors? What about just police and sheriffs and, County executives, what's going to
4: happen? I know from covering covering the marijuana beat for a while that um, Dan Satterberg said he just never took marijuana cases because juries won't convict. So it's not just a matter of a will of a prosecutor. It's like they know what a jury will do, and a Seattle jury is not going to convict anybody for possession.
3: You also got to consider – I would expect Seattle-King County to be able to stand itself up on this a lot quicker in say a, a Soton County, which is the furthest I can think of us from right now, you know, you go to some like rural area, are they going to be able to go, okay, we're going to have a treatment facility ready to go. It's more likely they're going to probably contract with somebody away from them and send folks to that if they can even do that. Covered it?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Okay. So there,
1: this, we talk, we're we talking mostly about enforcement and penalties Hundred and eighty jail, hundred eighty days in jail for the first, Two first and second offense. Yes. Yeah, a thousand dollar fine maximum, but then the jail time goes up yeah. with more offenses. And as I say, focusing mostly on on punishment, uh, but there are millions of dollars that are now available statewide in funding for expanding treatment facilities, mm-hmm. other other resources, us um, local governments. Uh, allow things like needle, you know, make their own rules when it comes to needle exchanges and things. So there's there's some balance here between a, legal accountability and treatment, but we're questioning how that's going to work in effect if this stuff isn't ready to go, especially in a rural area. Is that it?
2: Yeah, and I do think that there may be some attempt to enforce it in Seattle now more with Ann Davison as a city attorney. She already uh, filed some legislation to try and Match the state uh, law to the city law or match the city statute to the state law, which would allow the city attorney's office to charge gross misdemeanors for possession. Uh, I don't know if the city council will be will go ahead and say, yeah, let's keep doing that. There might be some conflict there.
4: One forward looking thing, too. uh, There had been some debate about decriminalization. Oregon went that way. And uh, there was. Um, discussion about a a ballot initiative. I kind of wonder now, I think the Oregon uh, decriminalization effort has had, there's a lot of reporting about uh, the real difficulties of standing up the alternative to a criminal process in Portland and kind of made Portland the poster child of like, you know, um, you know, a a democratic city gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder now if this, what this debate is going to do to either feed um, that that one part of the ideological debate, which was, um, you know, has has a point about de- not criminalizing drug use, but now we've seen this debate play out. The legislature went the other way, and then there's the Oregon situation that um, could be. Um, could be a potential, you know, headwind for that kind of balance initiative. I'm curious, curious, what happens?
3: The Northwest Drug Possession Lab, basically, is where we <laughs> are. We'll see how this all plays out. Right.
1: Okay, topic number two on KOW's Week in Review. Two years ago, to get a grip on homelessness, Seattle gave over some authority to a new county-wide agency, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. And this week, the CEO of that agency quit. Mark Dones announced they're burned out and will resign next month. The deputy CEO is taking over for now, Jonathan. So is this important?
4: It is important because what the R, the Regional Homelessness Authority, I'm going to call this RHA for um, for shortness, um, is is what they're doing is important. Uh, if you, not to get too much, building too much context, but prior to the RHA, homelessness response was essentially a city hall issue. Um, we used to cover homelessness from our city hall reporter. It was run by cities, counties. It was not a regional issue. It was not a statewide issue. And the, I, the concept being that uh, a shelters the city of Seattle, which had more money and a, politi- and a political philosophy, which would supporting responding to homelessness, uh, would go big on this and creating this whole, this uh, meme around um, magnet city, Seattle being a magnet city for homelessness. We know that homelessness is driven by a number of factors, uh, housing costs, um, you know, certainly substance abuse issues, um, legacy of criminal justice reforms, and a number of other issues. And those are not city issues. Those are regional, they're they're statewide, those are federal issues. So the RHA was a response by the philanthropic community, um, which had gotten big on this, and um, some... Um, sort of moderate leaders in the city and county and the business community saying we need to have a regional approach to homelessness, the same way we have a regional approach to something like sound transit, uh, transportation. So Dones was a very charismatic uh, guy or person, uh, sorry. uh, And uh, he and they, um, they were a high level policy thinker. And I think that the issue that led to them resigning um, were in large part were administrative. My colleague Greg Kim did a very interesting story about a month ago about how the for the second year in a row the RHA was not cutting contracts on time, leaving large, well established nonprofits to basically run on their credit cards, max yeah. out their credit cards. So um, that's the kind of the big picture. Um, there's a lot else to say, but I feel like I'm talking too much.
2: I, I think that there was pushback, and I think the Seattle Times has reported on this. Everyone's reported on this. There was pushback to this idea that a plan that the Homelessness Authority put out under Dones, that it would take 10 to $12 billion to solve homelessness in the next five years. I, even some of the city council members were saying that just kind of like stopped everyone in the water from discussion about like some of the more actionable things to do now.
1: There was an audible gasp. Yeah, it was big. And
2: so... Um, I don't know how much a role that is. They now, as of this week, have put out sort of a scaled back version of that proposal, right, as he's saying he's going to step down. So it seems like there's a change of direction there and that might have been a factor. They also got dinged by the feds for um, not awarding housing slots. Correct me if I have this wrong, Jonathan, based on federal rules exactly. I think they got dinged maybe at least once, maybe twice on that. So there was that, that's the administrative stuff they're talking about a bit here.
3: I think you're just going to have to pay for it, Seattle. Sorry, I know this is the uh, this is the gut reaction response to all this, but uh, the burnout factor in Doan's uh, resignation letter is, is the thing that kind of stood out to me, and, and I might be reading into this too much, but Seattle has a homelessness debt, if you will, and it's compounding over and over, and it seems like our region is only making the minimum payment on it, right? If you really want to get it down, we've, we've got to We've got to just invest those billions that were, were said there um, or else it's just going to keep compounding. Or we're well, just look, going to keep can I
1: ask about that? Paying it down versus wasn't this initiative called something like ending homelessness or everybody housed? Or We have so many of these programs called zero whatever, yeah. zero homelessness, zero pedestrian death, zero traffic death, zero incarceration. So was Doan's... Just give it. what You want to know what it would take to to have zero homelessness? Ten to twelve billion dollars. Weren't they just a- answering the question? Yeah, we need
3: to stop saying things like ending homelessness, <laughs> zero. And I, I really like that they put a dollar sign onto onto this thing because because that that that's actionable. Whereas we're just going to end it. We have a, a zero thing, a really great little taglines, but it's just setting yourself up for when that when that clock hits and you haven't an ended homelessness. All the criticism is going to come, and now we're distracted by that. Yeah, we should really stop saying that.
4: It, it, that, that number that they're talking about was a real aspirational. It was sort of like, if you're really going to get there, this is what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. The actual functional plans, um, there has a five-year plan. It's not that. It's not been changed all that much. Um, you know, uh, The RHA and Dones had not been big on tiny house villages, which had been a strategy the city had done. Uh, there was a lot of effort to do, do these hotel shelters, a real effort to get away from these co- what are called congregate shelters, which are basically cots in a gymnasium, um, because people who are homeless, as if I were homeless, I would not want to go live, live sleep in a, in a cot in a gym. Uh, and there was also an effort um, to uh, go, to really have um, what are called net, a functional zero Uh, Homelessness in downtown Seattle and functional zero means it's a system that's so responsive that if a person becomes homeless, then they're immediately, um, you know, uh, taken care of. Um, So their ideas were the their ideas were good and was interesting, um, you know, but that uh, the downtown initiative has really kind of been stopped Seattle Times Project Homeless team again has been written about that quite a bit. um, And it's just not it's not worked. So. I think that there's a concern um, I have a concern as formerly the Project homeless I really kind of in learned a lot about this issue uh, that this is a there 's a burnout factor here. We had the ten year plan in homelessness under the Bush administration and that led to no and then we 've got the next one We got the state of emergencies declared and that 's not and it 's like this UEC, the more i think the concern is throwing more money and more money and more money. And all these aspirational hopes, and it's the same problem all Groundhog Day all over again. Uh, And that's why the the RHA, I said at the beginning, what they're doing is important because this is a different approach to how the regional entities are approaching uh, a very structural, very broad, very complicated problem.
2: It is possibly an impossible job to to – honestly, like I I think that there's – That was my first
1: reaction when the whole agency even began. Yeah. And and Sorry, some of the,
2: the no 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 it's fine. and some of the people have said also you know this is still a baby agency right I mean it's mm. still you're gonna have a lot of growing pains at any agency I've not been studying it as closely as Jonathan for instance but it is gonna be a very hard job for anyone to come in and have and hit every note that people want them to and this job with the yeah. new agency
4: one thing Dyer talked about too what Seattle just got to pay up. I mean the irony is that Seattle and King County pretty much are paying for this. Um <laughs> there's I think there's 29 or 39 cities in King County something like that and five other, five cities have signed on and plus Seattle. Uh and the five cities the northern North King County cities um signed on with a dollar amount. that was very very low. So um the all of the east side the well, there's money in the east side they have homeless people there the, all the cities in South King County a lot of homeless people down there and they are not bought into the RHA. So so far, it's it is basically a Seattle and King County plus these five northern cities just came on, supported by the business community and philanthropy. So the,
3: the Times recently had a story that covered pretty quickly the uh, federal new White House funding that's going to come through. Do we feel that that's going to have any influence on this? No. No, it's...
4: It's not really funding, there's it? no f- No funding came with
3: it. It's oh. like just gonna kind have of like, a oh, we're going to coordinate. Yeah. Okay. It's think. a nice pat on the back. It's like,
2: yeah. I, I, that's why I kept thinking. I was like, aren't, shouldn't you have already been doing that? You weren't I coordinating? I thought you were, because there's been like money from the feds. It's just so... Huh. But yeah... Um, I know the funding has been a huge source of concern for the mayor. He He's not commenting a lot about Don's, Don's departure except in positive ways now, but Mayor Harrell in the past has privately and somewhat publicly expressed concern with how much money is coming from Seattle to pay for this and whether they're get we're getting the bang for our buck. Yeah, on this. The,
0: the
1: stranger quoted sources saying that Mayor Harrell would be ecstatic if Don's were to step down and surprise it didn't happen sooner. But who knows? But uh, so these other cities outside Seattle, they're not paying much uh, for the solution but to their credit they are complaining about seattle a lot so it's not like they're doing nothing okay so let's take a short break and then more of week and rue you've got jonathan martin here we've got Dyer Oxa, we got melissa santos we've got a great show uh, to continue if you'll stick around
0: Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, Reasons for Hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at Paxi.org.
1: KUOW's Week in Review continuing. Bill Radke here, hosting a great journalist panel with Melissa Santos from Axios, Jonathan Martin from the Seattle Times, and Dyer Oxley from KUOW. Topic number three, where should we put our new airport? How about nowhere? Does nowhere work for you? This week, our governor signed a law that dismantles the state commission that was studying airport locations in Pierce, Thurston, one near Enumclaw in King County. So, Does this just mean we are going to expand the airports we have? Is that the plan?
2: I think that's the most likely outcome from this. Um, It's possible they'll convene and try and find a new site, but just no one is going to want the airport. No one. There's no Mm -hmm. one in the entire state who's going to want it because there's jet noise, obviously. And then also the infrastructure you have to build to the airport, roads, roads etc. If you're building it in a great green field that some counties have been working to keep as a great green field for decades, they don't want suddenly all this infrastructure going out there when they've been like, it's going to it's going to like flood us. So it's like this weird reversal of like yimby nimby like stuff where it's like <laughs> some people even told me a while ago in Pierce County, this is not not in my backyard stuff. It's we don't want it, but it's not that it's because we want to preserve the open space we've been trying to preserve. It's actually like pro environment. What we're trying to do is and have the density where it's supposed to be and not spread it everywhere. So it's kind of a weird debate. Um, but I do think there will be more focus on how much can you expand Painfield and Everett. Uh, Maybe Bremerton. There's these little airports that there's going to look they're going to look a lot more closely at. And then, you know, the idea of high speed rail, too. There's environmental folks that want to say, why do we need to just encourage more airport travel for especially for short trips when there's maybe more environmentally friendly options? So that might get a little bit more of a look. I don't know.
3: 20 years, one million homes, I believe, is the estimate for Washington that we are going to need. So I, I might be the odd one out in, in this room. I think we do need a new airport, but it's like a new airport and and then some. My my main reaction to this entire discussion is uh, a little bit broader in that we need to stop with this philosophy that we have to cram everything into western Washington. And that's where they wanted to stick the, the, this airport. Pierce County, King County, Thurston County. Seattle is is no longer – the funnel or the bottleneck that it once was. It's now Western Washington. It expands from Everett all the way down to Olympia. Uh, we have people commuting into Seattle from Olympia, Enumclaw. You know that that's the reality of what we're facing. And to just try to cram more and more and more with all these people coming in, I'm I'm in I'm in favor of going over the mountains and and throwing an airport there. I'm not trying to be not in my backyard. Go to Yakima, but.
1: Th- thus, high speed rail, as Melissa was saying, that's right. The exactly,
3: we need to we need to spread out. We need to stop thinking that you want everything closer to the main hub in Seattle. We need to find other places where we can create future hubs because it's not all going to fit.
4: It's here. like that that Denver the Denver airport where you feel like you're landing in Kansas. <laughs> yeah. <and> try, <laughs> the. Uh, I I, I had a we had a discussion with the Port of Seattle folks this week in our newsroom uh, and they were talking about how much they already are doing to expand the airport they are I mean they're really understand that the capacity is maxed out and going to Dyer's point the projections of like. It's like 94 million passengers by 2050, yeah. which yeah. is
2: like another 27 million, I think, yeah. that, that beyond what we have now. Yeah,
3: I mean, you yeah. also have to consider it's not just folks like us hop in a plane, it this is freight, yeah, commercial. this is stuff coming yeah. in that's coming to your store, it's stuff that's going out that we're shipping.
2: Well, there it's, is a terminal expansion underway at SeaTac, though. Mm-hmm. I think they've calculated that into the their projections that we still need more, though. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, and
4: Pain, yeah, Painfield mm-hmm. had added Alaska's Got Flights, although. Going to the same problems of sighting an airport, like the Muckle Teal around Payne Field has been kind of raising, raising some uh, cane about, the, you know, the noise and all that. The airports are big, noisy, messy yeah. places. And it was interesting, too, there was a lawsuit recently by the residents around SeaTac. We're talking about, I think it was an extra, um, how many was, 100 ex- excess deaths per year due to environmental problems from the airport. Um, so not only it's like, OK, okay you you, you got to deal with the noise and the pollution. Oh, and it's going to kill you, too. Uh, so uh, good luck with the it's kind of the mother of all sighting decisions.
3: Well, if you look at our region alone, it's not just SeaTac. We have JBLM, which is a major military airport. We've mentioned Paynefield, mentioned Bremerton. We also got Renton we also got one down in Olympia. I mean, those are a cluster of smaller and larger airports, but this the air is filled here.
4: I'm just going to p- just throw this out there. So, we kind of know that a carbon tax is coming at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh and there is hardly anything you can do that is more polluting <laughs> than r- running an, an an airline. Uh and I kind of wonder if we have some era of, you know, cheap travel and if we actually price in the carbon cost of flights, if it's going to be flying, is going to be a little less, uh, you know, affordable, a little less realistic.
3: It's interesting you bring that up. The uh, uh, Tom Bonse, the legendary Tom Bonsey, <laughs> sorry, Bill, uh, <laughs> who uh, recently retired from KUW, uh, had a story, one of his last stories was about the emergence of – Electric airplanes, mostly for passenger service, utilizing the region's smaller airports. I mean, this is spanning everything from California to Washington to, one, develop a new market of air travel, but also to free up pressure on the area's airports that we already have. The anticipation for that is electric aircraft or uh, hydrogen fuel cells, things like that, that are going to carry folks in different directions than just depending on SeaTac, for example, to fly out to different larger air- air- airports. A carbon tax might actually feed right into the aims of, of that emerging industry in our region. So you're saying
1: maybe if if air travel, if we're living in this bubble of um, affordable air travel, then maybe we're not going to need so much air Until there's electric, you know, know, planes that can fly everybody everywhere. But if we're depending on fuel, maybe they're not going to, they're going to be fewer flights because people won't won't be able to afford to fly with this. What it
4: reminds me of is back in the day, I'm going to be the old old timer, but we had something called the Washington Public Power Supply System. Oh,
3: yeah. And
4: their projections were based on, we are going to need so much more electricity. We're going to need to build massive nuclear power plants around the state. And it ended up luckily it didn't implode, but financially imploded. Um, you'll still see if you're driving out to Aberdeen from Olympia, you'll see one of the stacks that was actually built um, and is now it never, never became a plant. It kind of reminds me of like the, we project these things and we think that we're going to need this because all the trend lines tell us we are going to need X amount more, you know, gigawatts of electricity. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe we won't need quite that much uh you know, flight capacity? Maybe. I don't know.
1: Can we just make ourselves a little less desirable? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how can we make people want to come here less? Smoky summers could help. We well, have yeah,
2: those. Those are probably happening.
1: Yeah. Okay. Do we cover that? Airport? So, yeah. based to to recap... Uh, it's not going to happen. In th- there was a commission, a state commission, studying rural locations, greenfields, they call them, right, just dropping an airport where there's, it's not an, a, a built-up area, in Pierce and Thurston, and also one near Enumclaw in King County, and those discussions are just off. So for now, we're looking at expansion or uh, air travel getting so expensive that nobody flies. Yeah,
3: price everybody out.
1: Price everybody out. Okay, uh, next topic. Which way we we've, we've been talking about decisions? Okay, so, so far today. So, where do you, dear listener, come in? Your vote. And we've got in uh, in Seattle and King County. This is the final week for candidates to file to run for office to try to get your vote. So, uh, Jonathan, who are some of the candidates we should pay attention to, and why?
4: Well. I'm going to kind of punt on that question because today is okay. filing day.
3: We're going to wrap up early. That was, man. That was my plan too. Yeah. Yeah.
4: What it is is there's an extraordinary number of candidates, uh, in part because yeah. we have so many open seats. Can we,
3: uh, Bernard? Can we pl-
1: just play some music and have Jonathan list 48 <laughs> candidates? I don't know. That's a that's a bad idea. So what should we know about we, we have we candidate got, filing week?
4: We have six white open races, and which is extraordinary. And uh, the what the number that number of wide open races because we had a bunch of incumbents just back out to say, I'm not doing this anymore, which leads to my next question is who wants to become a city Seattle city council member? It's like, it seems, feels like to me, it's a really tough job. You've got people yelling at you all the time. You've got intractable problems. Like we've already just covered, you know, drug use, uh, you know, a downtown that has got, uh, got some problems. You've got homelessness, And now they've got a budget deficit that they're dealing with because, you know, all that real estate building, the city's budget is built on built on building and they're not getting that money in anymore. So, um, you know, the the two that are running are uh, the two incumbents that are running, Dan Strauss and Andrew Lewis, both also are going to have very vigorous challenges. Um, Andrew Lewis's district in. Uh, the Ballard area got redistricted to make it look like slightly more conservative. Um, so con- air quotes, Seattle conservative. Um, but uh, he's already got, you know, he um, already got a lot of pressure. Dan Strauss does, too, in the Belltown area. Um, so I about I'll-
2: Tammy Morales' job? Because she she's running, too, and that's a different district with fewer challengers. And I haven't mm-hmm. quite got a good read on that race in um, sort of Beacon Hill, like more South Seattle international district. So far, unless we get huge surprises this afternoon, she only has a couple of challengers, maybe maybe two or three, compared to some of the open seats have just like 15 yeah. people who filed, right? Or, or it seem like they're going to file. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how that will shake out. I think we will know more after the primary. And I know that's an easy answer, a convenient answer. But you don't know if all these people lining up, if the, what the voters are going to say, right? Yeah. You don't know if they're who- going to pick the business-friendly candidate in some of these cases right. or like pick two people who are like just very very far left like is it going to be a socialist versus a far left democrat we don't know yeah. so, so there's
1: nothing about who's filed this is the this is the end of filing this is this is the deadline we don't know enough yet to say Wow! Look who's filed. Apparently, there is going to be a real change, or it's a very status quo. We just—it's too early to say. Well,
3: I, I don't have an answer to, to necessarily that or the the question of why someone would want to run. I do have an assumption to offer, oh, though. Thank oh, I love goodness. Forgive okay. me to for being like we call the that a hunch. Voice, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hunch. but I, I I did look over the list of folks who are signed up so far as of this recording. I think we're four hours shy of the deadline, ish or so. Um and I am picking out what I what I assume might be a Seattle trend and I have a feeling that we have gone so far in a, a direction with Seattle candidates that I feel I'm a lot more business oriented. Uh, candidates are emerging. And we've always had that in in the past, but you know, but in a very Seattle way, I, I noticed there's two cannabis uh, um industry uh, <laughs> right. you know, business owners. We have a bar owner, someone from the Fremont Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. uh, owner of Proshki Proki. Oh, yeah, so I feel like we have a lot of different angles coming in from kind of the business areas of Seattle, probably wanting more of a voice. You do f- feel like, that's a common complaint you've heard over the last decade or so, uh, voices coming to City Hall saying that you're not listening to the business voices where the small businesses, is and, and so forth. You, you feel like you've heard a lot of the, the other end of that spectrum, and it, I do have to wonder – is there more of a push to get that voice back onto the council? It's yeah. not like it's been entirely absent. It but worked for Sarah just, Nelson. Yeah, Sarah Nelson mm-hmm. came in. I think a lot of folks would argue that when Bruce Harrell came in, they felt that he was the more business-friendly candidate. Uh, as we said before, it, it's Seattle, so it's kind of like what shade of blue are we going with here? Yeah. But I, I would I would estimate that the, the, the primary is going to tell us whether or not we're going to get more of these types of candidates emerging than what we've seen in the last maybe couple Cycles. Okay, well, then why don't we pause? I like that hunch.
4: That's, that's a, a good, hunch. That's a good one.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's pause on a hunch and save a little
3: bit of time
1: um, for, for our next topics, because we'll find out a lot more as we uh, <laughs> see how these candidates actually do. Let's take a short break. Let's uh, either ban some books or f- liberate some books and talk about uh, artificial intelligence down the pike when we return on Week in Review.
0: Patrick. This
1: is KUOW. I don't blame you for being tuned into Week in Review. Um, I mean, you got me, Bill Radke. But mostly you got KOW's Dyer Oxley, you got Axios, Melissa Santos, and Seattle Times investigations editor Jonathan Martin. Let's talk book banning, okay? It's on the rise. Parents and politicians pushing to censor what students can see. In public schools and public libraries. According to the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom, 2,571 unique titles were banned or challenged last year. That's up nearly 40% over the year before. 40% of those titles had protagonists or prominent secondary characters of color. 21% had titles with issues of race or racism. Another 41% have content related to LGBTQIA plus identity and themes, Jonathan. Seattle is trying to counteract this with a project called Books Unbanned. What's that?
4: Um, well, um, the, the issue itself is really—I I, kind of focus on the issue itself, okay. which is a, a bigger picture national trend. And it, what struck me is how much— this is an old is new again. Uh, do you remember that in the 2001 Patriot Act, it gave the FBI authority to go snoop in your library usage? Mm. Uh, we've had, you know, we've had the same books that have been debated about the Handmaid's Tale, um, Lady Chatterley's Lover. Like, these are these books that just have been like we had this this issue has come back around and around and around. What feels new around... Are about, you there, God? It's me, Lady Chatterley. <laughs> <laughs> Even remember The Night Kitchen by Marie Sendak? Sure. I saw that on the list. Um, yeah, like, I think uh, Mickey is nude. Yeah, that's right, yeah. A, a nude boy. Yeah. Um, the Harry Potter series. Yeah. Um, what I think is new about this time is that in, I think the combination of having a generation of trans youth coming out and, and pushing for recognition... Um, and also the the Black Lives Matter protests of the pandemic, both those having the pandemic, I think really activated the social base in a way that's like new and very vigorous. Um, what you're seeing is uh, also you see the polarization of our politics. Legislators legislatures are increasingly um, single party and very pure in their uh, in their um, approaches. Um, you know, you have the state of Texas, one of the most largest and most growing states in the country, um, is has a bunch of bills right now that seem to be have some juice that uh, would be criminalizing what criminal uh, sanctions against librarians for not policing lists of banned books. Um, It's it, the extent of this round is just extraordinary to me. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not impartial on this issue. I, I'm a proud father of two trans kids and watching the, the, The vigor at which particularly the trans community is targeted in these debates is just extremely painful.
3: I think there's a larger issue at play as well as beyond that, because, like you said, this is an age old issue. Every year we have a new list of books that have been challenged and trying to be banned across the United States. Um, I feel like it comes just from all corners of our political spectrum Every year, the Bible gets challenged quite often. You know, for example, yeah the uh, the the issue here is is there's that concerns me, and maybe this is just because I come from the world of journalism. Is that there is a trend of challenging critical thinking with all of this? You know, whether you agree, disagree, like, dislike, whatever the contents of these books are, what you are short circuiting is critical thinking, and that is a larger danger, I think, for our society. Book bans, prohibitions don't work. We know this. It didn't work with alcohol. Uh, you know, it clearly has not worked with, with drugs. It doesn't work with information. As Seattle is proving, look, you can try to ban it in this state, but the internet exists. VPNs exist. You can always go online to Seattle to get to these books. Someone is going to find it. That's the them.
1: Books Unbanned Project, allowing exactly. people access through, uh, digitally through Seattle's library. Exactly. Or is it the whole state? I'm not sure. Maybe just Seattle.
3: Well, and, and unless they've banned it somewhere else, because I believe this one has been challenged quite a bit too. Fahrenheit 51 is all about this as well. So the 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 issue here of trying to ban information or ban the critical thought around these issues is something that I, I would worry about more in our society is I would rather hear somebody say, I disagree with this because I read the book mm-hmm. and I know why, and then we can have a conversation. But look, An axe not put up the friction is dull, and your brain is the same way, right? If we just take away the friction from our lives, we're just going to get really dull as people.
2: That (laughs) was very profound. It was That's a very profound metaphor. Uh, I do not have anything that uh, profound of a metaphor to say. You're
1: from Axios. Do you not have an Axe-related uh, metaphor yourself? I do not have okay. one.
2: But I will say that it just really f- does fit into this theme. So again, the books band is le- Seattle Public Library saying, hey, anyone 13 to 26 years old from anywhere in the U.S. can sign up for a library card and for free – and check out books from our library that are available digitally, you know, abandoned um, your library, come to us kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's something that Washington State, again, I, I've covered politics for a long time been t- probably too deep in our legislature this year, um, honestly. Uh, but, you know, that's something that our state is doing a lot. It's like. Some of these battles are not on our front lines in a way, because, again, like we discussed, we're controlled entirely by Democrats, governor's office, um, both chambers of our legislature. So they're saying, how can we help people from those states in a lot of ways? They did that with an abortion shield law, which, Mm -hmm. you know, not going to get too deep into it, but aims to protect people who come here for abortions from state laws that try and criminalize or restrict or restrict that. And all providers here who might provide that service to someone from another state. We did that gender affirming care, those laws also try to protect doctors who are providing that to people who might come from states where it's banned, and those individuals as well. So this is kind of what we're doing, saying, how can we get in on this debate and do something about it, even though here, um, maybe those things are not at the forefront of our political debate in the same way. That's not to say there aren't people who are trans or who are have or have difficulty accessing abortion in some ways in our state. There are. But it's not necessarily the legislature trying to make that problem worse or trying to um, make things even more inaccessible in our state. So they're trying to help others access it. So that's just kind of a theme I think about when I see the books unbanned. It's another way of trying to do that.
4: It's like a sanctuary library.
2: Yes. And I think that's what uh, I think that. Yeah, exactly.
4: I I love Dyer's point um, about um, the lack of intellectual curiosity. It's like you kind of rob us of of the intellectually provocative writing and you kind of rob us of our creative ambition you know um uh yeah Uh, it's 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 a it's a really worrisome trend um the only thing that gives me comfort is that um we've had trends like this before um movements uh flame in flame and then fade and um i hope that um i hope that um our librarians will be safe and our libraries will be full
3: can't stop the presses
1: right Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of the unstoppable uh, digital spread of information, <laughs> our, our, let's get to our uh, final topic here. Artificial intelligence is here, and the Seattle area is helping, is, is opening the door, is welcoming it in. Not only do we have a lot of AI startups here, but Microsoft is investing billions and billions in this Silicon Valley company, OpenAI, whose CEO testified this week to Congress and said, uh, basically, thank you for having me. My industry my industry is dangerous.
2: I do think some regulation would be quite wise on this topic.
1: What is so dangerous about AI?
3: Uh, in sh- well, if one, if you want a good roundup of all this uh, shameless self-plug yesterday's today so far, our newsletter was all about this, rounding <laughs> up our reporting and then some. Um, but imagine... A world where you go online and you are getting news from somebody and you are making actionable decisions on that news, but only to find out later that the person you're watching is not real. That was entirely computer generated. The voice you were listening to was not real. That's entirely computer generated. Both those technologies in AI exist right now and are being used. And so that is just one ethical quandary that, that we're dealing with right now. But beyond that, there are concerns across many industries Maybe some more or less founded, but is this going to replace jobs or will this become a part of the workflow of many jobs? Um, One angle you can look at this is this going to be like the movie Her, where artificial intelligence is part of our daily lives as an assistance and a helper, or is this going to be the Terminator, where essentially this AI is going to take over jobs and humanity altogether? Uh, Two very different perspectives. I guess Blade Runner's in the middle of all that, but. Uh, there's most of the concern I think that that is happening right now is because we just don't know, and I think that makes people a little fearful. To have a CEO like we just heard say we need to be regulated I might play into a little bit of that concern.
1: I'm going to just play a little bit more of Sam yeah. Altman.
3: OpenAI was founded on the belief that artificial intelligence has the potential to improve nearly every aspect of our
4: lives, but also that it creates serious risks. We have to work together to manage. We think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. For example, the U.S. government might consider a combination of licensing and testing requirements for development and release of AI models above a threshold of capabilities. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong.
1: My life's work is a menace. Please stop me.
4: <laughs> well, there's the context, too, of the, what we didn't do with social media. I think there, yeah. this, this is really the next... The next thing in tech, and you know, I think we could all look back and say, "Yeah, they absolutely should have regulated social media in in a different way." Um, So, I think there might be some preventative kind of uh, uh, preventative posturing going on. And
2: you saw that referenced explicitly in this congressional um, hearing before the Judiciary Committee. The IBM, uh, an IBM executive, I forget their title, but she was saying. This cannot be the era of move fast and break things. That's a direct quote, and that's referencing Mark Zuckerberg saying that about uh, which, well, some point in the development of Facebook or early on. Um, and so he was saying, just
1: showing us pictures of college friends. Well, I mean, yeah. What, yeah,
2: I mean, I mean, maybe it was the face smash or whatever era. I'm not sure when Zuckerberg said that anymore. But, but you know, I mean, specifically referencing we don't want this to be like social media where it just is completely – allowed to go on its own with no no regulation. And so you have multiple executives saying regulate us, which was very interesting to see. And, you know, with Microsoft, um, they have had, I'm not going to say burned, I guess I am saying burned, they have had problems with the government before, right? They don't want to get into some big antitrust, regulatory thing after the fact. I think when they're spending 13, 14 billion, some billions of dollars on this, they want, they're like, tell us your concerns now so we yeah. don't get, so we don't cross you later in 10 years and have to have some big, Problem. I mean, they've had this antitrust stuff before. They even have something else going on with that now. Mm-hmm.
3: The other, the other concern that we we need to realize and come to grips with, perhaps, is that one government has a very poor record of keeping up with technology. Um, social media is another good example. Of that I, when I looked into this, I remember that Colin Powell, Secretary of State, came into office in the early 2000s and realized they needed to stop using Wang computers <laughs> and maybe get computers that could do things like the internet, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's That's the level that we're dealing with. Um, fast forward to today, we have that slowness combined with the fact that AI is already here. Uh, I picked a few brains of some friends working in the tech industry locally, and they pretty much tell me that uh, AI is basically building on top of something else that's already threatens uh, jobs and so forth, which is automation. Um, AI is like the next level above that, and they're saying it's already replaced a few jobs out there uh, within their own tech sphere. Personally, I foresee this coming into the online content space, even the news media space, and perhaps um, replacing some functions and, and roles there. Um, the I don't think it's going to happen everywhere. Next I, week it'll
1: just be three well, people on the show well, instead well, of four. Exactly. I mean, we'll just see how that
3: goes. <laughs> well, and I don't. The thing is, I think there's some folks and customers clearly are not going to want an AI delivering their news. However, working in this industry long enough from many different angles, newspapers, TV, radio. Someone is going to do it. Someone is going to have an AI gleaning a press release or information from Twitter or something. And then that AI is going to write a radio script and that AI is going to work with another AI that's going to create a false voice and then go on air and do it. Well, yeah. Something's going to happen out there, out there to do that.
4: We are having a conversation in our newsroom exactly about this. And one of the things that struck me is that exactly that, the simple functions can be automated. Exactly. You know, we think about um, sports box scores. Yeah, um, you know, simple write up a press release kind of thing, and you, I, you spit it through, and it's interesting. And it's oftentimes it's wrong.
2: Yeah, that's the um, oh, problem yeah. still, but maybe but it won't be later. I don't well, know. We're,
3: we're, we're in the infancy right now. I already tried to get Chat GPT to write my own newsletter, and it. But did let, not but go let well. me finish
4: before my Sorry. colleague. My colleagues say, uh, <laughs> come 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 for you. Pitchforks. One of the things it will never be able to do is it will not really be able to develop sources. It won't mm-hmm. be able to think critically about the um, like a. A public record strategy, or an investigative technique, or whatever. Um, the more sophisticated the functions of journalism are going to be, more valuable. I think they could be assisted by AI technology. Where if I'm going to be writing fifteen press release, uh, fifteen public records requests a day for documents, it could automate that for me. You know, it could then remind yeah. me when I need to go check back for the records are back. But um, we're 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 treating chat. We're we're, we're treating. Um, uh, ChatGPT like a source, if you get information from it, you go get the original source. Like if mm-hmm. – the same way if you – somebody cites a um, a report from you know some agency, you go get the report and make sure it's, it's being said what is actually said. Um, one of the things we're also thinking about is the business side, like how – do we need to have some kind of crawler on our website to tell people none of this content was generated by AI? Because you can have an AI yeah. – like check for other for AI generated content. So I think in the news media industry, this is going
3: to be a fascinating next few years.
1: I, I 100% just ag- keep an eye on the clock. We I'm enjoying oh. this. We have two minutes left. But <laughs> well,
3: I'll just say I 100% agree with you. Uh, it's just that business side that I, that makes me have a little loss in faith around this entire issue. We live in an era of journalism, where a lot of folks who kind of pull a lot of levers never came up through journalism, and instead came came with business degrees, and that is who is pulling the levers. And and a lot of those decision-makers, uh, without offending too many people that I've worked with in the past, it's just they look at the the landscape of the job and they think, what can we carve away and save money and carve away and save money? I'm worried we're not going to sell this ad this month and I need to carve away. And they're going to look at an AI mm-hmm. and they're going to think, okay, we'll scale back the newsroom to do all the work that you just described, but... We'll have the AI handle all this other stuff that we use people for. And I, that's that's the fear that I have for the future landscape of, of news media. Yeah,
1: uh, that that's really something to smile about. But, I know, don't I. but, but <laughs> since we end the show, we got one minute. I will just give you something to smile about, uh, which is watching paint dry because the Space Needle is being repainted after a year uh. of being galaxy gold for its anniversary, 60th anniversary. Anybody know the new color?
2: It's astronaut white. Astronaut I white, do Melissa
1: this. Santos, uh, and also the Seattle Times uh, did this thing about uh, the new Alaska Airlines 737 with the artwork. First time they've used artwork from an indigenous artist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the salmon theme. They have a salmon series that they're doing, and it's that. It's called. I didn't know what it was called. The Northwest Coast form line style, but you've seen that style. Uh, they say Alaska says that they're the first airline to have the name of the plane in an Alaska native language, and the Seattle Times put up the video of them. You know, creating it's a. I mean, it's busy, but I think busy in a good way. I think it's, it's pretty fantastic. and bright
2: blue, and it's nice. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty. gorgeous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: paint dry. Um, oh, we got to go. Mm-hmm. You want to smile about the fact that you can leave now and have lunch with each other?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Let's smile about that. And let me thank our producer of the show, Kevin Knistat, and uh, also Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Teo Popescu and Bernard Ouellette running the board. And, of course, our panel, Axios, Seattle-based reporter Melissa Santos, Seattle Times Investigations editor Jonathan Martin, KUOW online producer and editor Dyer Oxley. I'm Bill Radke. I hope you have a fantastic week. Thanks, everybody. Good
0: thank good you. Good